How we doing, King's Church? So I was thinking about the things that cities are, are known for. I was thinking about St. Louis, thank you, Chris, and the arches there. I was thinking about Chicago and the Windy City. I was thinking about New York City, the Big Apple and Empire State Building, and, and uh, even, even Atlanta, right, which is obviously known as the headquarters of Chick-fil-A. What else is there in Atlanta besides that, right? Uh, but in Irma, we got okra, right? We got an okra, baby. That, that, uh, that vegetable that is so terrible, the only way you can eat it is by frying it and breading it, right? But uh, anyway, I, I didn't get a chance to go to the okra strut uh, yesterday. Looking forward to that, but it is a fun time. You know, this town was a train depot. Some of you may know, know that. And the, the goal, obviously, of a train is to convey things to different places. And that was what Irma was known for was it was a train depot, and today, my goal, as it is every time I get a chance to preach for y'all, is to convey God's truth to you, because this is the change agent that God uses to change our lives, to change the way we think, to change the way we feel, or change the actions that we engage in every day, and center it around who God is and what he's done for us, right? So this is God's word, and we've been looking at the Gospel of John, and we're just three chapters in, there's so much there. This has been a book that God has profoundly used since the time it was penned by one of Jesus' own disciples, profoundly used in the lives uh, of people. And, and the whole goal of this book, he, he says, and I mention this every time, every week, just so you know, in chapter 20, in verse 30, and if you're not used to looking at, at the Bible, maybe it's been a while since you've been in, in church, uh, the, the kind of, if you're looking at the Bible, the big numbers are for the chapters, the little numbers are for the verses. And in chapter 20, verse 30, we read this. Now, Jenny, Jenny, that's my wife's name. Jenny does a lot of things, but she didn't do this. Now, Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you're going to hear this all day today, all right? And that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so John, like a good writer, when you want to convey a story to someone, what you do is you put in only the necessary information. You know, as whenever I do sermon prep or Josh does sermon prep or anybody who who comes to to preach for, there's a lot of things that we have, that we prepare, that we study, that we read, that we leave out because we want to bring a concise and clear message. And that's what John is doing in this passage as already mentioned, our goal is to experience God, find community, and live on purpose. That's everything we do funnels through those categories. But you cannot do any of those things until you embrace what this specific passage teaches, which is a summary of all the, what the Bible teaches. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, so that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have ever lasting life. How did we get to this point? This isn't a statement that's just dropped into a bucket. It's a statement that's given in context. John opens up the book with this prologue where he tries to build in really a poetic fashion the eternality of Jesus Christ. The fact that he was from all eternity God himself and that he has put on humanity in order to come and dwell amongst the people of, of God. And then he, John spends time talking about another John, John the Baptist, which is this crazy looking preacher who comes on the scene and gives people a very unpopular message, very similar to what Josh said Jonah did, okay? which was repent of your sins because the Messiah is coming. 
All right? And so he, he is wildly popular, even though that message doesn't seem like it would be wildly popular. And he gives a sign to accompany it of baptism, of washing away and making yourself clean. And so there's unrest in, in the nation of Israel uh, as this message is going forward. Then Jesus chooses his first disciples. He does this wild thing where he clears the temple with ropes. They're, they're uh, selling uh, animals and they're exchanging money. And Jesus forms a whip and literally beats people out of the temple. And naturally the response to that is, who is this guy? Who is this guy? And so Nicodemus comes, and that's the passage where we find ourselves in this morning. Nicodemus, who was a religious leader, Pharisee, he comes and asks that very question. At least that's the what he's asking in his heart. Who is this guy? And what authority do you have to do that, this? And he comes to Jesus, and it's a fascinating passage. We talked about this last week. He comes to Jesus, and he doesn't even ask the question. Jesus just knows what it is. He says, this is what you need to do for eternal life. You must be born again. And Nicodemus is blown away by this concept. We talked about it last week. But in the middle of that discussion, we read verse 16, which is the most popular Bible verse in human history. Right? We've, that we, a lot of us know a lot about the impact of this Bible verse. It's hard uh, to grow up and not hear something about it, though maybe some of you have. Um, there have been billboards with John 3.16. There have been people dressed up at football games with rainbow wigs that had statements that said John 3.16. Billy Graham, the famous evangelist, preached on this verse more than any other uh, verses. And, and hundreds or thousands, potentially even millions of people have come to faith in Jesus Christ, to salvation, to eternal life, has escaped the perishing that this verse talks about through an understanding of this verse. Here's another story. Um, many of y'all have heard of Tim Tebow. If not, you've been living under a rock for the past decade, right? Um, he was this amazing athlete, and he played for, uh, for Florida, the Florida Gators. In 2009, they won a national championship, and he was a Heisman Trophy uh, quarterback his junior year when he was playing for the Gators. And one of the things that he was known for, besides being a great quarterback, was the fact that he was an outspoken Christian. That was what he was known for, right? And, and uh, back in the day, I think they still do this, was real popular, they wore these eye black stickers under their helmets, and uh, guys would write their area codes, where they came from, or they would say, I love you, Mom, or whatever it is. They would put it on their stickers so the TV cameras would be able to pick it up. Tebow put Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, but Phil 4.13 on his, uh, on his eye black, and they were having a great season, national championship season, right? And they were going into uh, the national championship game, and he just felt impressed by the Lord that he needed to change, um, to change the verse that he's putting on his eye black sticker. They were playing against Oklahoma. And if you don't know anything about athletes, know this. We are extreme. I say we. I used to be one, right? Like, so past tense for me, right? But athletes are extremely superstitious. So he knows that his coach, who was a crazy superstitious man, Urban Meyer, was really going to, he's probably going to be real upset that, that, that they're changing anything, right? We're going into the national championship game. Listen, what we're doing is working. Why would you change anything, right? So he goes and prepares his coach, right? Prepares his coach to say, hey, listen, I'm going to uh, change the verse that I put on my eye black. He put John 3.16. Uh, they won that national championship game, and 94 million people Googled John 3.16 during that game, okay? 94 million people Googled. That's a really cool story, but it actually gets better. 
uh, exactly three years later to the day. So the national championship, 2009, January 8th. Three years later, January 8th, 2012, he's now in the NFL and he's playing for the Denver Broncos and he's playing in the playoffs against the Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Steelers, and they won the game. And so he's going to do his press conference after the game and his publicist stops him and he goes, do you realize what happened? And he goes, no, we, we beat the Steelers. We're going to play the Patriots. This is great. He says, no, you don't understand. Exactly three years ago today, you put John 3.16 on your uh, on your eye black, and today in the game, you threw for 316 yards. Your yards per rush were, were 3.16. Your yards per completion were 31.6. The time of possession for the Denver Broncos in the game was 31 minutes and 6 seconds. The ratings for the night were 31.6 million, 31 million. And then during the game, 90 million people Googled John 3.16, and it was the number one thing on social media. That's a true story. And what is interesting, Tim said, um, I thought that, that me putting the John 3.16 on my eye black was for three years ago. But the story continues. Needless to say, this is a verse that God has used in countless lives. How about yours? Let's look at the passage where we find it in this morning. Please give your attention to God's word. I'll begin reading John 3.16 and I'll read to verse 21. For God so loved the world that he gave his own, one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stand condemned, stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. And everyone who does evil hates the light and will come into the light for fear of his deeds that will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Pray with me. Father in heaven, as we consider your word, we pray, God, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together as we worship you over your word would be pleasing and acceptable in your sight and helpful to us for our good and your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a big idea this morning. John 3.16. I'm going to talk about the other verses in the passage, verses 17 through 21. But the main focus, obviously, is going to be on John 3.16 this morning. John 3.16 teaches three compelling reasons to deeply believe in Jesus. Three compelling reasons to rely on Jesus Christ. The, the love of God, the wrath of God, and the reality of eternity. The love of God, the wrath of God, and the reality of eternity. Okay? And so we're going we're gonna to be looking at that. It, what should our response be because of these three realities, the love of God, the wrath of God, and the reality of eternity? Uh, God demands a response from you. But 
there are good reasons why he's asking. I don't see any more compelling reasons that we can look at this morning than these three reasons. The love of God being the greatest treasure in the world, there is nothing more value. And what I'm hoping that will happen to you is that you will be more convinced of that than ever, or perhaps convinced for the first time. The wrath of God, the wrath of God is the most terrifying thing that your mind can conceive of. And there is nothing that you should be more afraid of. You should be so afraid of this that you are always on the verge of a panic attack. And if you're not that kind of afraid, then you don't get it. And then finally, the reality of eternity. The truth of the matter is that we are all going to die and eternity is real. It is a real thing that we have to deal with and that our lives are simply a drop in an ocean or a single grain of sand on all the beaches in all the world. And what John 3.16 does is it, it takes all of what the Bible teaches and compiles it into one memorable statement. It's a statement about some really bad news. Death, destruction, the wrath of God. And some almost mind-blowing good news. That God did something about it. So, we're going to look at that. I'm borrowing uh, an outline that I got from John Piper. If you had never heard him before, he's a great preacher. I thought it was a wonderful way to look at the passage. Um, but he, uh, he described John 3.16 using four, four words. Danger, design, duty, and destiny. Danger, design, duty, and destiny. Okay, I thought that was a helpful way of looking at it. The danger of rejecting or ignoring what this verse te teaches. The design of salvation the duty that we need to have or the obligation that we need to have in response and then what's the destiny as a result. So point number one, the danger of rejecting or, or ignoring the, what this passage teaches, what we call the gospel, which is the good news of Jesus Christ, right? And the reality is there's high stakes here. There's high stakes. And you can deny what this passage teaches. You're free to do that. But you need to understand there are high stakes. Imagine playing a poker game where you're in, your home is on the line, okay? Or back in the day when we watched all those drag race movies. By the way, they're still making those. Isn't like Fast and Furious 55 out now or something like that? But when you would, when you would lose the race and you have to give up your pink slip to your car, you lose everything, okay? The stakes are high. This passage says that there are consequences of not believing, perishing, the Greek word apoletai, it means to perish or to be destroyed. The consequence is that God is going to destroy you for all eternity. God will destroy you for all eternity. And, and what this points to is a reality that it's uncomfortable to talk about, but it is a reality that the Bible teaches. And I would submit to you that, it, that the reality of the condemnation, the wrath of God, and the hell, which is a very real place, is uncomfortable to talk about if we served a God that wasn't so willing to provide a remedy. But this is the reality of what the Bible teaches about eternal hell and punishment. John 3, chapter, 37, chapter 3, verse 36, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, and God's wrath remains on him. The image that the Bible uses most often about wrath is intense, burning heat, white, hot anger. You ever felt that? 
You ever felt, I've, I've been so angry before. You know, it's interesting, I'm, I hope to go to a, a conference in, in just a few weeks with my wife, Jenny. Uh, it's a kind of retreat thing, and it's interesting to me that the title of this conference that this guy put together is uh, Preaching the Gospel in the Midst of an Angry World. You guys feel that? You live in an angry world right now? That's nothing in comparison to the white-hot anger of God. But if you've ever felt intense rage, you almost you feel out of control. It's almost everything you can do to, to bottle it in so you don't do something that you're going to regret later. But think about it like this. What if you were God and you not only had the power to exercise your wrath in whatever way you wanted to, but you would be justified in doing so? Our wrath is oftentimes we want to exercise it, but the way, reason we don't is because we either don't have the power to or we know that we're wrong to want to do it. God has neither of those problems. God is so powerful that everything you can see, taste, smell, observe, hear happened because he spoke it into existence. He just said it, and it was light. And not just the things that, you know, our earth is amazing. There's almost a universe in every single one of our cells. And then there's a universe outside of the earth. All of that, power. And that same power, God will throw on you for all eternity. Unless you embrace the remedy that he's given. Matthew 13, verses 49, Jesus is talking about separating good fish from bad fish. And he says, this is how it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come and separate the wicked from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Mark 9, 47, he's saying, listen, you need to do whatever you can do to stop sinning because there's wrath to pay and you need to avoid that wrath. And he says, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die, think maggot, decay where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Revelation chapter 20 and verse 13. The sea, talking about Jesus' second coming and everyone's resurrection. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Talking about the resurrection of everything and everyone when Jesus comes back to judge the world. He initially came as a savior. God gave him as a free gift. High priest shed his blood. He comes back again. Not so nice. The sea gave up the dead that were in it, and the dead and, the, and death and Hades gave up the dead that were in them, and each person was judged according to what he has done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. The lake of fire is the second death. If anyone's name was not found in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I could go on and on. I don't, one more. Revelation 14.10, talking about someone who worships the beast, which is in Revelation is a symbol of what it means to reject God. He too will drink of the wine of God's fury. That's a pregnant image. Drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. And he will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. And there is no rest day or night. Bleak. 
Intentionally so. One of the things we don't talk about very often is the resurrection and the second resurrection. We talk about Jesus' resurrection. We don't talk about our resurrection. You know you're going to resurrect? Regardless of whether you're a Christian or not, you're going to resurrect. There will be a resurrection of your body, and your body will either be raised for eternal life and joy and peace and happiness and fulfillment in God forever and ever, or it will be raised to experience eternal torment forever. I don't know if you realize this, but you're eternal whether you want to be or not. And your body will be raised imperishable, either to experience God's joy or wrath for all of eternity. I, I love sitting next to a, a fire. It's getting to be good season to go camping, right? Hopefully we, we, you know, Josh and I, we've been talking about this camping trip for a couple years now. Hopefully we can actually get it together, right? Do something with the kids, maybe out at the cabin. Love camping. There's something mesmerizing to me about a fire. I don't know what it is. I just, it's just fun to sit around and talk to a fire. And then inevitably what happens is that the log burns down and then you got to go get another one. Right? We, we did a fire out at your house, and we all smelled like cedar for a year and a half you know, after that, because you know, we burned cedar that day. But what happens is the, the, uh, the log eventually burns down, and then it kind of turns into this gray ash, and what do you have to do? You've got to go get another log. This is what an imperishable body means. In the second resurrection, if you haven't embraced Christ, if your life is not in the Lamb's book of life, you will receive an imperishable body, and unlike that log, you will never wear out. Ever. You will have an everlasting, unperishable body that will experience the torment forever and ever and ever, and it will never, the new log will never need to come, and there will be no rest. These are not my words, these are not my concepts. I'm simply here as a messenger. This is what God teaches. And also the magnitude of eternity. We'll talk about that in just a minute. But I think about eternity every time I get a bad headache. Praise the Lord, I don't get a bad headache. But it feels like when I get a bad headache, it feels like an eternity before my ibuprofen kicks in. And I can finally stop. And every time, every time that happens to me, I think about eternity. This is just a little headache. This isn't a life on fire. And I'm just talking about physical pain. I'm not even talking about the emotional pain of hell. The darkness and the shame and the guilt. Because if you've ever been in pain before, it, you, you, it consumes your mind. But if you've ever felt shame before, I mean, we all have, or guilt, you know that's almost worse. Whenever you're found out, that thing you did, you wish no one knew about, and then all of a sudden people found out about it or someone found out about it, you almost wish you could be punished just to get rid of the shame. Well, you'll never get rid of that either. The biblical doctrine of hell and eternal punishment, and also in verse 18, we see the, the doctrine or belief, same, same word, same concept, teaching, of condemnation and judgment. Look at verse 18. If you don't have a Bible, it's, it's in your order of worship. John verse 3, verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's only Son. Here's what this verse is teaching. What it's not saying is that you're, 
you're condemned because you didn't believe in Jesus Christ. He's saying you're already condemned. You were born that way. You were born with a corrupt, sinful nature, and the verdict was guilty from the moment of your conception. Only those who receive the free gift that God is giving don't get a condemnation. The reality for you and for me is you're a filthy sinner in God's eyes. And honestly, if we could see every thought that you had, or if you could see every thought that I had, you'd, you'd be mortified. Because it wouldn't only be that God knows that, everyone would know that. God is going to condemn you to eternal punishment unless you place your faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, what this passage teaches is that you deserve God's condemnation. Verse 19 through 21, let me look at that real briefly and then we'll jump back into John 3.16. Verse 19 says this, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. The passage is, Jesus' explanation is asking a real relevant question. Why, why don't people, every, why doesn't everybody? It says in John chapter 1 that he came to the earth, but the earth rejected him. He came to his own, but his own rejected him. Why? Very simple. They love their evil deeds. Why would you reject this kind of God and his love? Why would you just ignore the reality of eternal punishment? Because you love your sin. You love, you love what he, say, he, he says here. They love their deeds. And, and when the light comes on, it's blinding. You've been in darkness for a long time. Turn the lights on. Turn the light on in the garage. Roaches scatter. Love the darkness. Here's the first step. Look at verse 20. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. Verse 21, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be plainly seen. Come into the light. Friends, we live in a very comfortable culture. We have everything, most of us have almost everything life can give us. Doesn't matter where you are, you're in the top 1% of of human history in, uh, in, in terms of what you have and the comforts you enjoy. And one of the things that affords us is the ability to ignore the reality of death. We've got, for the most part, just excellent health care. Again, unprecedented in human history, and we can ignore the reality. And what I'm begging you to do today is stop ignoring it. Stop ignoring that reality of, of the condemnation of God and death and walk into the light the light that this passage is giving you. Intellectually see that Jesus was a real man and really did these things. Morally feel the condemnation that you already know exists in your heart because you know that God is just in throwing his condemnation on you. There is danger, condemnation, hell, bad news. Don't ignore it. You know why this verse is so popular? Because it doesn't stop there. 
It not only tells us about the danger, it tells us about the design of salvation. The magnitude of your problem is so big that God had to get directly involved, and he did. He did. God was compelled by his love for you. Especially after what we just talked about, that should blow your mind. God was compelled by his love for you, for God so loved the world. Every type of person, that's what the world means in this passage, not that every human being has experienced the the freedom of, of salvation because we have to make a decision and not everyone makes that decision, but all types of humanity in every corner of the world. God loves humanity in such a way that he's willing to get involved. God didn't need humanity to be happy. The confession, which I'm going over, Westminster Confession of Faith, which I'm going over with our leaders, uh, our leaders in training right now, teaches that God is the fountain of all life. He has complete happiness, joy, and satisfaction and peace in himself. He didn't need you. He didn't need me. And he, the fact that you exist is, is amazing. But that his love for you is such that he was compelled. It's like... You trying to hand a master carpenter your Fisher-Price hammer. Or you making a mud pie for a master chef. Or trying to, to, to win the affection of an athlete who's got the national championship trophy and you're giving him your third place trophy at the hot dog eating contest. You have nothing to offer him. And yet he lavishes his love on you. In Christ. For God so loved the world... That he gave his only son. You, you can't give anything to God that he needs. And to add to that, like we already talked about, we're all rebels against his law and deserving his wrath. And the price that he was willing to pay was Jesus Christ himself. And that's really hard for us to get our minds around. That word that's translated one and only in my translation, NIV, um, maybe in some of your translations, maybe the word you've memorized is only begotten. The, the thought behind that phrase is that Jesus was the son from all eternity. He was never created. He always was. But from all eternity, they enjoyed, they enjoyed this bond that's deeper than any father and son can experience on this earth. And he gave it up. Why? Because he loved you. He gave it up because he loved you. How did that play out? He sacrificed his son. He sacrificed part of himself for a wretch like you and me. How did that play out? Jesus came to earth and he was humiliated on several levels. He was humiliated by the fact that he had to become a human being. He was humiliated because he had to submit to the law that he wrote himself. He was humiliated in the fact that he had to die a shameful and painful death. John chapter, 1 John chapter 14, verse 10 says, This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That word that I have right here, atoning sacrifice, a great word for that is propitiation. 
It's a technical theological word, but it's important for you to know because this is what it means. Appeasing the wrath of God. Remember all that wrath I was just talking about? Jesus drank it all because God loved you. He drank it all. The sacrifice of Christ was the only way to pay for our sin and to soak up like a sponge. Y'all know a sponge, right? You got a wet counter, you throw the sponge on there, it soaks up the water. There was so much wrath that God has for you and me that the only thing that could soak it up all up was God himself. There had to be a God-sized, infinite sponge to soak up all of the wrath necessary. That's why God, that's why Jesus had to come. He's the only way. Islam is a false religion. Catholicism is a false religion. Mormonism is a false religion. Buddhism, Hinduism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Judaism, the whole nine yards is false. Why? Because they teach that you have enough in your sponge to soak up the wrath of God. It's like, it's like a, a man who comes into an orphanage and rapes and murders everyone in the orphanage. And then he goes to prison and for the rest of his life he makes flower boxes for little old ladies. And he comes to the, to the God at the judgment day and says, Listen, don't you see the thousands of flower boxes I made? Irrelevant. Someone needs to pay the price. Jesus paid the price. In his infinite divine nature, in his perfect human sacrifice, he could soak up the whole thing for you. And so you could put your head on the pillow tonight in peace. If you've placed your faith in that, don't place your faith in your works. It's not going to cut it. You know that. I'm not telling you anything you don't know. You know that. But if you place your faith in Christ, that, spoke will so, that, that, that sponge will soak it all up. This is the design of salvation. That God had to get involved. His love compelled him to do so. Not his obligation. His love compelled him to do so. And he accomplished salvation because the eternal son of God became human being and absorbed the wrath of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whosoever believes in him. What's the duty? He gave his only son gifts are free. It's the definition. What's the greatest gift you've ever given someone? For me, it was the engagement ring. You know, I was a seminary. I had no money. When I say I had no money, I had no money. And I was saving up for this engagement ring because I wanted to ask Janie to be my wife. And I ate peanut butter jelly sandwiches every single day for almost an entire year just to scrap together enough money to buy this ring for her, and then when I gave it to her, I didn't demand her to pay me back. At least not initially, right? I didn't, that's, not, that's not how it works. I say, I, I love you so much here, it's yours, right? That's what happens here. He gave. How can you ignore that? The response that God wants is a deep, life-altering belief. We call that faith. Deep, Life-altering belief. Belief is not simply an acknowledgement. Okay, we're ten, our English word, 
tends to raise that image in our mind. It's not simply an acknowledgement. In Luke chapter 4, it says that the demons believed in Jesus. In, uh, and Judas seemed to believe in Jesus at some level. Why else would he follow him? Okay? It's not, simple, it's not just a simple acknowledgement. What this belief is is a deep understanding and trust. A deep belief in this, in this God-man. The Greek uh, for belief, pistos, in this, in this verse is, is a present active participle. Let me tell you why that's important. Because you could translate it like this. He who is believing. He who is believing. Let me tell you why that's significant. That's significant because it's not that you believed uh, 30 years ago. It's not that you had a religious experience four years ago. It's not that you grew up and your parents were really religious people or good Christian people. It's that your faith is active in your life at this moment. That's what that means. And deep trust. Pull the parachute type of trust. We talked about that last week. You jump out of a plane, you're trusting in that thing when you pull it. That's the kind of trust. That's the kind of belief. That's what it means. What does this belief look like? John chapter 6, verse 35, and Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. He who believes in me will never be thirsty. Where do you find your satisfaction? This type of belief finds a satisfaction in God. Hunger and thirst finds nourishment. John 8, 31. To the Jews who had believed him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What does this belief look like? It's a deep trust, deep faith, deep belief that has ongoing consequences in your life right now and for the rest of your life. How do you know you got it? Well, are you satisfied in Christ? Do you follow him? Do you obey him? That's what this, that's what this seems to say. This is what God requires from us. Now, finally, what can we expect as a result? What can we expect as a result? Danger, design, duty, destiny. Eternal and everlasting life. Now, I spent the sermon intentionally talking about the everlasting death. You heard that. At least I hope you did. But what about the life? I can think about what eternity is. You know, so when next time you go to the beach, if you get to, or maybe you can do this at Lake Murray, just grab a cup and just dip it in the water and hold it. Let that be your life, a symbol to you of your life. And now look at Lake Murray and let that be eternity. And just think about that. Or a salt shaker. Take one grain of salt out. And just hold it up against that little salt shaker. Think about eternity. What does eternity feel like? I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm weird, and this I think about this stuff all the time. Maybe it's maybe it's true. But in some of my happiest moments, there's oftentimes a slight stain of sadness because I know there's going to be an end. You ever feel that? What if there wasn't? God teaches that Jesus and teaches, and again, I can't unpack it fully, I'll give you one verse, that when Jesus comes back to judge the world, he's going to create the heavens and the earth brand new again. He's going to create us brand new again with bodies, 
either to eternal life or eternal life. And then there's going to there's gonna be this new heavens and new earth that comes. God's going to recreate the earth. Revelation 21, 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away. Are you outdoors people? Nature's amazing. It's glorious. Imagine it, imagine it now endlessly better. Maybe you're like me and you get a lot of satisfaction from what you do or accomplish. You mow the grass or you build something and you go inside and be like, everybody come out here and look at what I did, right? This is satisfaction. You do, you do something well. It's only going to get better. What about the relationship? One of my favorite things to do is sit around and laugh, make fun of each other, tell funny stories. Think about your best relationship, your best friend. Now imagine it better. Forever. And here's something I want you to get, and I, and I can't give it to you. God's got to give it to you. But I want you to think about eternity like this. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this. Now this is eternal life. He's praying. Jesus is praying to God. Now this is eternal life that they may know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Hear me. Eternal life is not simply new heavens, new earth, great bodies. Happiness, no pain, no crying, no tears. Fulfilling work, great relationships, beautiful nature. That's true. But it is a pure and real knowledge of a God who loves you like this. That is eternal life. Jonathan Edwards says this. I hope you'll find it as important as I do. The fountain that supplies the joy and delight which the soul has in seeing God is infinite. The understanding may extend itself as far as it will. It doth but take its flight into an endless expanse and dive into a bottomless ocean. It may discover more and more of the beauty and loveliness of God for all eternity, but it will never exhaust the fountain. You know when you finally do get a lazy Sunday or whatever, you're loving that rest, and then about 2 o'clock you get bored. You find something to do, you know? So you're thinking about eternity, and you might be thinking, that's a long time. What if you could know God more and more and never exhaust the fountain? This is eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Two points of application. If you are unsure of whether you have placed your faith in Christ, if the thought of everlasting death terrifies you, praise the Lord. Stop ignoring it and do something about it. Relinquish everything else that you are hoping and trust in. Beg God for forgiveness. Turn from your sin. Embrace Christ through faith and rest on him and him alone. If that sounds foggy to you, what I just said, you're interested in it, you don't want the eternal left, but it's foggy, let's chat. There's plenty of people here 
me as a prime example, that would love to dig a little bit deeper into what that means. But maybe you're ready today. Do it. Stop ignoring it. You ain't guaranteed another second. For those of you who have embraced Christ, what I want for you is for you to be compelled by the truth of this passage to live a life of joyful service and obedience to God and not keep trying to perform your way into God's favor or other people's favor. You don't need other people's favor. And you don't need to earn God's favor. You got it. So serve him with an unbelievable obedience an unyielding love that's fueled by his love for you. You can live for God right now. You can taste heaven right now. You can serve God with joy and satisfaction your whole life. You don't have to impress him. He's already impressed. John 5, 24. I tell you the truth. Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Did you hear that? It didn't say will have. Has. Right now. Eternal life. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. Whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Father in heaven, I pray that you would help us maybe to embrace you in faith for the first time. And for those who have embraced in the past, I pray for us that we would be able to worship you with a whole new joy, a renewed joy, a reborn joy. And that we would be able to live these lives for you with unyielding obedience because you sent your only son. I pray, Father, that you would bless us as we finish worshiping you today and ask in Jesus' name.